one of my favorite speakers of all time. You know, when you go to a trade show and someone's on stage in front of a few thousand people, one of my favorites of all time is a man named John Acuff. Now, John is a guest on the show today here at the Chase Jarvis Live Show on Creative Live. And if you're new here, this is a show where I sit down with the world's top creators, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs, and I do everything I can to unpack their brain with the goal of helping you live your dreams. And so today's guest is John Acuff. John, among many other things, and being an amazing speaker, he's also got a new book called Soundtracks. And in short, if you have self-talk that doesn't always work for you, and I want you to know, and John wants you to know, that you can change that. You can reprogram those thoughts, those words into actions that help you. In this conversation, we also talk about a few things like if you have childhood trauma or even uh, adult trauma, there's all kinds of ways that that is those those that baggage can be things that we carried forward that don't serve us. He can think, John talks about helping change the soundtracks to that trauma. Uh, and right now there's a very organized person saying, well, I don't overthink. I just am very, very organized and meticulous. John gives you a formula for identifying whether you are overthinking or not. And he also covers among many other things. Again, three really important critical skills for now. So I'm going to get out of the way and let you enjoy this conversation with yours truly and John Acuff, again, incredible speaker, brilliant writer, author of seven books, New York Times bestseller. I can't wait for you to spend some time with John Acuff. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Look, after a successful photography career and directing and shooting all over the world with the top brands, I started to feel a tug in a new direction. What if I could share everything I learned across more than a decade and help other creators and entrepreneurs navigate their own journeys more effectively? I kept pulling on this thread around lifelong learning, and in 2009, I started Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. Creators and entrepreneurs, hobbyists to full-time professionals have all leveled up with their careers and their lives through taking courses on Creative Live. And to be fair, they also make this show happen. They make it possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, I encourage you to check it out right now. This is where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photography, video, art, design, music, and audio craft and maker classes, plus the ability to make a living and a life in any one or all of those disciplines. Now, since day one, Creative Live have been committed to sharing free content 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So there's always something there playing amongst our 10,000 hours of content, but the real win is the subscription. Now, you all know that I'm a huge believer in the power of habits, and you've probably heard me talk on the show about how small daily choices add up to design and create the life that we actually live. Now, Creative Live, as a sponsor here in this announcement, wants you to know that they have a new powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That is the subscription that I was just talking about. How can you get the Creator Pass? And with a Creator Pass, you can find new areas to develop your skills. You don't have to worry about just buying one class. This allows you to improve your craft, consider making money if you want to with whatever it is that you're trying to do, to pull on your own threads of curiosity and explore. If you're ready to invest in yourself and take the reins for this one precious life that you've got, then subscribing to Creative Live is designed to push you in this direction. Sign up for Creative Live today. 
Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Mr. John Acuff. Welcome and thanks for being here, bud. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this one. Well, it's been a long time. We had a short recap right before we started recording, uh, but I wanted to put the brakes on that because the last time we were together was in Portland, Portlandia, with our dear friend Chris Gillibo. Uh, it, it was a dinner, me, you, Chris Gillibo, Vanessa Van Edwards, uh, Lewis Howes, uh, there were, you know, and, and a handful of our, I know my wife was there, I think maybe- My wife uh, was there. Your wife was there. It was a, it was a great- table made me so happy and i look back on that picture every once in a while it pops over my feed or my timeline or whatever and it brings me a lot of joy uh that was a long time ago though so it's been a minute since we got together yeah it's i i look back on that um i was telling you i love that you shuffled the table um and it was one of those things that i took away because i got to sit next to people that our orbits don't cross often and i think new ideas happen when orbits that don't cross often get together and so I just look back back on that and go, oh, I, you know, the conversations I got to have, I got to know you. Jeremy Cowart was there, so I came Jeremy, with him. Jeremy, yes, right, love that guy. He lives guy. in my what town. And we flew together, um, and so yeah, it was a really and the event. I love Chris Gillibo World Domination Summit. Like it felt like three thousand artists doing secretly amazing work in the city of Portland. Yeah, we took a town over. I think he's ten years in, right? This is he was going to do it last year, and that was the tenth season. And I was on the schedule. Him. I was going. Well, because he invites the best people back. Yeah. Notice I didn't get a call. He's yeah, like, he he like said, "Don't mention it." That's kind of ticket chase is what he. Called. Yeah, he's like, "You no. want to buy a bulk ticket?" <laughs> <laughs> Sitting row forty nine D. I I'm going to say one other thing before we uh, dive too hardcore. I do. I want to start off by saying, "Hey, everybody." John has a new book. It is incredible. I think, John, it's your best work yet. Oh, thank uh, you. And we're whatever. We're just a couple of weeks into your launch, and you've already got like 500 reviews on Amazon. So uh, apparently the universe, uh, and they are eating it up. Um, so congratulations. I want to talk about that. But before we do, my takeaway from our first time spending uh, a weekend together uh, there in Portland was your keynote. You may have even been the closing keynote. Uh, which is like the slam dunk spot. And you absolutely crushed your talk. Oh, thanks, I was dude. sitting off you know, s- uh, stage left and y- y- I don't think I've been uh, that close to someone crushing it that hard at any of these. Um, you know, I've probably given 50 speeches at these big trade shows and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And you just had the, had the audience, you had all, all of us in the palm of your hand so I thought that's an interesting way to start out because it does have to do a little bit with your book, a little bit with one of you, what you called your favorite things in the world, which is speaking sure. uh, in front of people. Um, recap that that event, if you would, real quick, your particular speech there and like, why do you love it so much? And is that why you're good at it? Yeah. So, I mean, that particular speech, I remember it. I mean, I remember the shirt I had on. I had uh, my kind of go-to purple plaid shirt. It was like my, I call, I think I called it Prince's uh, picnic blanket is the joke <laughs> I'd refer to it as. Um, and I, the speech was really about being an artist, finding your voice and being brave. So I started with the idea of if the eight-year-old me wrote me a letter today, would they, would they cheer or would they cry? So if they saw the things I was doing, what would the response be? And if I said, oh, but we're building a platform, the eight-year-old me would be like, what's a platform? Like, it, But are we doing stuff that fills us and lights us up? And I'd be like, oh, but we got Twitter followers. And the eight-year-old me would be like, 
Again, I don't know what that is, these words you're using. Are we using our gift? Are we stewarding the things we've been given? And so that's what the talk was about. And it's my favorite thing because I might be on the stage, but I'm on the front row of life change. Like one of the most amazing things that happens in a speech is that you give the speech and then you step off stage and somebody will say, oh, I love that thing you said. And you go, what did I say? And then they'll say something that you didn't actually say, but they heard what they needed to hear. So like when I say a speech is magical, I mean that like, I think the best storytellers, in my opinion, leave space for you to finish the story. So what I mean by that, like, look at a Porsche ad, a Porsche ad is tons of white space, a money shot, a simple headline, two little paragraphs, because a Porsche isn't a car, a Porsche is a story. And good storytellers know if I start, start the story about the ocean and I don't overfill it, then I'll tell myself the best story because I have 45 years of vocabulary and memories. And if you give me room to tell my my ocean story, I'll remember growing up in New England. I'm in the third grade. My dad's in seminary. We have no money. He's painting houses on the side. And he would sit me up on the roof and we could see the ocean miles and miles away. And it was this thin little blue strip. And I remember that moment. And that's what a good speech does is it creates this setting where you as the art chase, you get to tell the chase story. Vanessa gets to tell Vanessa's story. And that's what's fun for me. And then when you get to take them in unexpected places that they're not expecting, like you're going serious, serious, serious. And then you throw in a joke and you go, you know, every time I see the bumper sticker that says, my dog is smarter than your honor student, I think, where did you go to school? How bad was your honor student? <laughs> like, I get that your dog is smart, but I've never known an honor student to eat their own throw up. Like, that's not a thing honor students do. Your dog isn't smarter than an honor student. Like, I've never known somebody to go, Kyle's great. He's in AP calculus, but he, he, you know, freaks out if he hears thunder. So we put a thunder shirt on all the calculus students. Like, if I, and then I can kind of weave that together. That's why I say it's my favorite thing because it feels like magic. Well, speaking of magic, uh, you've got a, a new book and the premise of the book, well, the title soundtracks, a surprising solution to overthinking. Um, and it's absolutely magical. I was just sharing with you also, for those of you who can see, I just got a bunch of dog-eared pages. John and I had to reschedule our recording one time because I had a something come up on my end that was rather unpleasant that I had to manage. And, uh, and so this has been in my, in my backpack going everywhere with me and went down to Palm Springs with me not too long ago. Uh, congratulations on the work, but before we get to the details of the book, this concept of soundtracks of the way I like to think about it and share it is, is the most important words in the world are the ones we say to ourselves. So before we get to some of the punchlines, Let's go back to when you started telling yourself stuff as uh, a young person embarking on this career. You Mm -hmm. have a background working with other people, writing for them. Um, You started to see a world for yourself where you could, you know, as you said, you're on the front, you're in the front lines of human transformation. Mm -hmm. Uh, For the folks who don't know as much about you or your work as they should, go back, way back and, and say, how did you get your start? What are some of the core principles, first principles that you thought of then and and um, how did it get to now? Give us a way back machine. Yeah, so it's 2008. Um, I live in Alpharetta, Georgia. I've got, you know, beautiful wife. I've got two kids under the age of four and I feel stuck. My career has plateaued. I'm in my early 30s and you hope a plateau happens in your 50s, but I, I'm a, an advanced learner apparently because I'd already reached a plateau. Um, I was a senior content designer for a company 
which is just a fancy term for copywriter. And there was no super duper senior content designer. I had reached the top of a ladder and it was really intimidating. And I would sit there in the parking lot, you know, in the dark, waiting to go in the building, listening to Jimmy Eat World, The Middle, which is definitely a song about a high school sophomore girl. But I'd be like, he, this is my song. Like, I'm going to edit <laughs> on parts where this is clearly about a sophomore girl. Like, whatever. This is John Acuff's song. And I felt really stuck. And in that season, I started a blog and I started to write on the internet. And I felt like there was this whole other world where you got to kind of create the rules um, and you got to have a voice where, you know, in the 50s, like you had to have a radio station. You had to be kind of, you know, nominated to have a column in a paper. And all of a sudden I was like, I can share ideas. And in that season, somebody reached out an event planner from Oklahoma and said, Hey, would you ever come speak at our event? And I had never done that. I didn't know you got paid for that. I didn't know that was a thing, but I had this tiny thought or what I'd call a soundtrack now, um, just a repetitive thought that said, I think I can do this. And I didn't have any evidence. I didn't have any financial proof. I didn't have really anything other than the thought that I think I can do this. And I started to kind of water that thought with action. I started to lean into that thought and that's what took me on this this really fun journey where it moved me to Nashville. It helped me write books. It helped me, you know, be in Portland talking to amazing people. But it started with the seed of a thought of, I think I can do this. Like, I don't know what it means yet, but I think I can do this and I'm going to try to do this. And that thought, like, even like when people would say, okay, but you failed so many times. I did, but I, I remember there was one time this event, I wasn't speaking at the event because the only person who knew I was a speaker was me. So I wasn't even speaking at the event, but I said, hey, can I have a room for a meetup? And they're like, yeah, that's fine, whatever. And so I print a thousand stickers. I have this meetup. I bring all these snacks and I'm there for 90 minutes and two people show up. Like, and one was a friend who just said like, good job, buddy, you're doing your work. And like the other was a dad who walked in for 30 seconds and was like, I don't read your blog. My daughter does call her. And I had an awkward 30 second conversation. And I remember even that moment, I was like, I'm going to share this. Like one of my soundtracks is it'll be a success or a story. I'm either going to get a success from this or a story. So I had my friend take a photo of me in a sea of chairs sitting there. I had a shirt I had printed up like based on my <laughs> blog. Like Chase, I was all in. I had like I, my in-laws printed a thousand stickers because I'm like, he's going to be massive. And it was a huge failure, but I shared it. And I was willing to do that again and again and again because I had this thought. I was like, I think I can do this. Like that didn't go well, but I think I can do this. And that's kind of where I started to lean into overthinking as a superpower. Well, it's either a success or a story and sometimes successes are stories too. So I, I think that's a great way of looking at life. The thing that I'm, I want to start at around the, uh, the soundtracks and I've, you know, had countless conversations, either getting off stage or feedback on social or face to face, small groups. I find that the, that one of the barriers that people struggle with is their ability to a dream that the thing that they're doing right now is this, these are just simple trappings that we've either cultivated for ourselves or agreed to either, you know, overtly or unintentionally. And so before we get into overthinking, or maybe this is an, an angle on overthinking, what, what is it that allows us to get unstuck what was the thing or series of things you shared it as a phone call but i'm that's an external impetus you know yeah and but there clearly had to be some 
some narrative that shifted inside of you in order to see that phone call as an opportunity versus, you know, a fear response or an abandonment response or like, I'm not going to do this or like what changed in you? And I'm, I'm asking this because I think that nine out of 10 people who are listening or watching either have had this or are currently experiencing it because there's this gap between where we are and where we want to be. There's a bunch of stuff that's keeping us there. One of them is a soundtrack, but there was like some click in your brain, I'm guessing. And I'm wondering if you can identify what that was. Yeah, it was a series of clicks. I would say it was small steps. I think one of the hardest things is that culturally speaking, when we talk about dreams and we talk about goals, we often go, you have to begin with the end in mind, which I think is a good principle. Like it's not, but like we've overdone that to mean you have to know the final destination before you take the first step. You have to know where you're going. Like modern goal setting goes specific, smart goals. The S is specific, make the finish line super specific. And I think that puts all this pressure on people that have barely gone. I didn't know I'd write a book. When I started my blog, when I said- You've got seven books now, by the way. (laughs) I've written seven, but I didn't know that. Like, And if you had told me, Chase, if you had said, John, it's going to take you 12 years to get to this mark, that would have been so discouraging. But like, what I had was, I like these ideas. I think when I share them, other people will like them too. So I'm going to try that. Like not in a big way, not in a massive way. Like I didn't say, I'm, you know, I'm going to have a radio program in 12 years or whatever. I didn't come up with this massive goal. It's just like, I think this is really funny or interesting. I bet it's interesting to other people. Can I go find those other people? Like we put so much pressure. That's one of the things I tell people, like a really simple soundtrack you can use if you want to write a book is to write on a post-it note. It's just a book. We over-dramatize already difficult goals. So I'll meet people that'll go, I've been working on my book for seven years. And I'll go, whoa, they'll go, yeah, the book is like, and I'll go, what's the goal of the book? And they'll say, to prove to my dad that my choices are good. I'm like, whoa, like, no wonder it's been challenging. Or they'll go, you know, to capture my voice on paper. Writers say that kind of stuff all the time. You go, writing's easy. Just open up a vein and bleed on the page. Like, come on, like, we're putting so much pressure. So for me, I didn't sit there and go, this is the launch of a new adventure. I said, I have an idea. I think it's funny, interesting, serious, whatever version it'd be for somebody else. I'm going to share it. I'm going to dip my toe in versus going, it would have been too intimidating for me to go all in right out of the gate. Like that's why I talk about side hustles. I still had a full-time job. I was do- still doing freelance clients. I was writing um, jingles for like, um, like laser hair removal. Like I was doing all these radio jingles, like, or like dog daycare centers or like tire centers. Like I was writing radio ads. Like I was doing all this stuff. And then on the side, I had this tiny thing that I was like, I love it enough to get up a little bit early and try it. And so it was a series of switches like that. And every time it worked, I'd go, oh, okay. Like, let me try a little bigger. Let me try a little bigger. It wasn't, I didn't have an all in moment until much later. Until much later. So at some, at some point there was an all in moment. Yeah. Moving to Nashville, like when Dave Ramsey said, Hey, we like your ideas. We want to show you how to do this on a bigger level. That was one of my transitions from I'm in a cubicle with a side hustle, writing a blog to I'm now going to move my entire family from Atlanta and say, my ideas are now my full-time job. So I'm going to speak on his stages, be on his radio show. Like I'm going to go to kind of this greenhouse and figure this thing out. And then leaving there was another one. Okay, I feel like I'm ready to try this on my own, which everybody thought I was crazy. Like, you know, why would that the biggest platform, why would you leave that? But I think I can try. And that was eight years ago. So there were there were definitely all in moments. 
but they came after a whole lot of small little bit in moments. Well, I appreciate you sharing yours. And for the folks who are listening right now, like John's, John's story, you know, there's the, the, I think it's the James Joyce quote uh, in the particular lies of the universal or just contain the universal and why I'm retracing your steps and connecting it to the, that please that I've heard from so many folks across the internet and in person is that these, this, this is, it's very natural. It's very pers- uh, pervasive. This idea that there's something that's keeping us from the things that we want in life. And in your new book, Soundtracks, you talk about that as overthinking and share with us why this is not actually a personality trait. This is not like this is this is again, go back to in the particular lies universal. This is a universal thing. And what we all have to do, we've got this thing between our ears. It's a multi-million year old organ. It's not there to make us happy or inventive or wildly joyfully in love with our life. It's there to keep us to survive. So if overthinking isn't a personality trait, what is it? And how did you latch onto this as the mechanism that unlocked your life? Well, the, the, the thing I'd say is whether you're going to launch a podcast write a book, start a business. I think there's three things that every successful idea have in common. They have a deep personal connection. So the creator is deeply connected to them. The second thing is people actually need them. You're seeing an express need in the market. Um, that could be from conversations. You've already mentioned that a number of times. I stepped off stage and pe- these were their needs that people express to me. The third is there's a spot for you in the marketplace. So with overthinking, Um, I had a personal connection to it. I had seen it change my life in 2008, that when I chose to choose my thoughts, it changed my actions, which changed my results. Like in the simplest way, new new thoughts led to new actions, new results. Um, And then I said, okay, well, let me test the need because I think people are overthinking. And so I commissioned a research study with this PhD named Mike Peasley. We asked 10,000 people if they struggle with overthinking. 99.5% of them said yes. So then I had two, like the Venn diagrams coming together. Third one is their spot in the market. I go to the marketplace and I realize there's a lot of great books on overthinking, but a lot of them say, stop it, stop it, stop it. And I look at that and go, why would I ever turn off this amazing thinking machine? I'm really good at thinking, what if I just fed it with good thoughts, not bad thoughts, thoughts that push me forward, not thoughts that pull me back. That's where I like to be counterintuitive. Like, can you imagine if your if your thoughts were working for you versus against you? So now I've got the Venn diagram and I can go, okay, I'm willing to invest years of my life and really try to help people with this. And so that's where I got kind of excited about the ideas when those three things were easy to see. And then what happened, which I just benefited from, it was accidental. Then 2020 was catnip for overthinking. Like the way I've, I've been telling people is everything is a thing. Everything in life is now a thing. And my example is always like the other day, somebody went to shake my hand and right before he shook my hand, I thought, should I refuse? Should I give him an elbow? Should I give him a fist bump? What if I shake and then dip my whole arm into a vat of hand sanitizer? Is it to say, <laughs> just scrubbing off the deadly pandemic he just tried to murder me and my grandparents with? Like, and then I looked around the room and I was like, are other people shaking? Is this a handshaking thing? Like, what does it say about us politically? Like, you know what I thought about two years ago when someone shook my hand? Nothing. I just shook their hand. So now everyone is overthinking. And so that's where the book launched into, in my opinion, a time where everybody has more thoughts than they've ever had before. And I want to say there's something you can do about them. And when you do, like your life changes. Like, Chase, we had somebody 
we did this thing where you're like, okay, what's your old broken soundtrack? And somebody said, I can't be a good dad to my kids because I didn't have a good dad. And he said, my new soundtrack is I can learn to be a good dad to my kids, regardless of who my dad was. Those kids will have a different childhood because that dude just got freed. Like so many of people watching this, listening right now are going, I can't start a business because I didn't like to hear the story of like Mark Zuckerberg had a business at four, like, you know, Warren Buffett as a zygote was, you know, he had a business in the womb and he was doing womb business. Like, and you go, (laughs) it's too late for me. So how many of your listeners, your viewers have believed the too late soundtrack? And then you get some freedom and go, oh, that's not true. And I get to change that. And I get to like write what is true and live according to that. That's where I think this idea is so powerful because I've seen it change my life and I've seen it change other people's lives. And I just think it's really fun. Speaking of changing lives, there are so many amazing stories, amazing stories, including several about Dolly Parton. Uh, Her, well, you got a connection with Tennessee. We already talked about that. My question is of all of the stories that you shared and this alignment that that the fact that this is such a universal i'm wondering if you can identify one of your favorite stories from the book or maybe something that wasn't in the book just that exemplifies what we're talking about here yeah the answer is actually the same um my favorite story is colleen berry um the the first first chapter she's in the first chapter my books changed chase when i started to invite research and other people into the conversation. What I mean by that is instead of just having an idea in my office, I have the idea and then I go test it. And then I go, Hey, I I have these generous followers, generous readers who will go, we'll test that for 30 days with you. Like we'll fill out surveys. We'll. And then what happens is when you read the book, it's not just another version of my story. Like God forbid, if I write another memoir where it's like, I'm 45, I found another interesting part of my own life. And you go, Oh, finally the next chapter of John Acuff's life. Like we've been waiting, like it's just, you know, another (laughs) memoir book. But what's great is that like when we were putting together the list of people we wanted to send a free copy to because we used their story, there were 35 people we mailed a book to. And that just got me. Cause then if you're a single mom, you read about another single mom who changed her overthinking. Because that experience is different than my experience. And so Colleen Berry, um, she was in Massachusetts, lost her job during the dot-com bust. She was a documentary filmmaker. She had shown a film at Con, Like, she was killing it, dude. She loses her job, has to get all these jobs to put together kind of her life. And one of them is being a receptionist. Another one was making pizzas. But she was a receptionist. And she realized there's not going to be a path that shows up. I have to create the path. And it's going to start with the thoughts I create. So I'm going to decide. My new thought is I'm going to create the best customer service experience in this lobby. You come in this lobby, you're going to be wowed. She figured out how to get like an espresso machine and she changed the entire approach. And now she's the CEO of that company. So the idea of she went from receptionist to CEO, it's an amazing story. And she she was uh, my favorite interview on my podcast. I have a podcast called All It Takes is a Goal because when I interviewed her, I was like, oh, she has so much more story. But I think that's really, and what's encouraging too, is it took her 15 years. I don't think it's encouraging when you read a story that goes, and she did it in an hour and a half. Her coffee was that good, Chase. <laughs> she went from barista to CEO in an hour and a half. So if you're not on that same pace, your life is clearly a failure. Look at Colleen. That's how good she is at espresso. Like, I love that she said, no, at this level, at this level, at this level, at this level. So that's probably my favorite story. So right now, I think we have, as as 
creators, different guests I've had on the show, so many of our mutual friends, we end up using um, a different vocabulary to identify things that make us stuck, blockers. And I think you've really hit on something with overthinking. Uh, to me, it resonated, um, you know, even just reading this subtitle before reading the book. So let's assume that everyone overthinks, but to, to address the doubters, cause right now they're like, I don't know if I overthink, I think I think the right amount. This is, I'm, I'm someone or someone in their underwear in Ohio right now. So like, I think the right amount, what are signs that people are overthinking? And I love uh, this question. I love this question. So the pushback I often get, like one of my favorite things in a speech, because we have to talked about speaking. Mm-hmm. I love to find the pushback and then address it before you've had it. Because then it's me taking care of the audience. So people say, I'm not an overthinker. I'm detailed. I like to be prepared. I like to analyze. I'm organized, whatever. That's great. I love that. So here's how you tell the difference. Being detailed, being organized, being prepared always leads to an action. Overthinking always leads to more overthinking. So if you're a detailed person, there's a trail of actions. You wrote the book, you launched the podcast, you asked the girl out, you moved to the city, you did the thing. If you're an overthinker, you just continue to overthink. And a really easy example of that is when a leader says, okay, I don't want to make a decision until I have all the information. Like Chase, we haven't lived in an all world for a hundred years. We live in an enough world. Like trade the word all for enough. I have enough of the information to make the decision. If you say I can't make the decision until I have all the information, you'll never make the decision. You're going to be overthinking. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is if you want to figure out if you have what I call a broken soundtrack, here's the easiest test. Write down something you want to do. Doesn't have to be massive. Could be small, big, medium. I want to you know, start a podcast. I want to write a book. I want to lose 10 pounds. I want to do a 5K, whatever. Write down a desire. And then listen to the thoughts that come next. Listen to the reaction. Every reaction is an education. So what's the reaction you get? Is it a reaction that's going to move you forward? If it's not, then it might be a broken soundtrack. And if you identify a broken soundtrack, there's three questions you ask. And these are the simplest. These are Trojan horse questions. I'll just be up front. You're going to hear the words and be like, those are simple words. But if you actually sit with them, there's truth hidden inside. So you ask every broken soundtrack, your loud ones, three questions. Is it true? Is this thing I'm telling myself over and over and over true? Second question, is it helpful? When I listen to it, does it move me forward or pull me back? And third is, is it kind? When I say it to myself, is it kind to myself? Would I say it to a friend and they'd still want to be my friend? Like that's been the blast for me. During podcasts, they've also often changed from a conversation about a topic to a conversation about the podcast host. And I had a podcast host in the middle go, oh, no. And I said, what? He said, well, I've been number one in my category for nine months in my podcast. And my soundtrack says, you're lucky, you're lucky, you're lucky. And he said, I'd never say to a friend who spent nine months working on something really, really hard, you're just lucky. You're just lucky. So he said, why am I okay saying that to myself? And so those three questions, when you ask them and actually sit with them, will change the, the thoughts you're listening to. You're going to be shocked how many untrue, unhelpful, unkind things you've allowed to play in the background of your life. Let's unpack this kindness vector for a second. Totally. My, my wife, Kate, is a m- mindfulness and meditation teacher. Mm-hmm. It's about training your attention and being kind to oneself, it turns out, is really 
helpful for a living life and for feeling yep. fulfilled and connected to your community. Why did you, I know why Kate is because we've talked about it for hours, but I think this is, I don't see kindness popping up in a lot of places. And so what attracted you specifically to kindness? Why that as one of the prime ingredients or diagnoses for, you know, for what it is that you want to be or become in this world? Yeah. So somebody asked me, what was the, what were the biggest surprises in the research and the writing? And I said, honestly, it was how many of my sentences to myself ended with you idiot. Like how, like my punctuation to so many thoughts in my own head, my own heart were you idiot. And I think that's a really good activity for anybody is check your punctuation, check your punctuation. How are you ending the sentences you talk to yourself? And so for me, the first thing was just going, wait a second. Why do I do that? Like, what does that mean? Um, on a personal level. And then I kind of expanded it out to say, okay, does it have value like to speak kindly to yourself? Like, cause it feels initially like too soft. And I want yeah, to go, okay, so well, that's I why I'm pushing it. on it. Right. It's like, yeah. oh, so, kindness, like I need what yeah. got me to where I am right now. And I'm kicking ass is that I'm hard on myself oh. and I work my ass off. And it's like, yeah. so like for me, so then like, it was a couple things too. Like my wife four years ago said, um, you're a jerk for the two years when you write a book. And you're a jerk for the two years when you sell a book. And that's not going to work. Like in our marriage, that doesn't work. Like I'd rather you be a happy plumber than a miserable writer. So this can't be it. And so I realized, whoa, wait a second. Part of it is I have to, use, I've been using fear and stress and anxiety as a fuel to get stuff done. And it's a good short-term fuel. Like I'd be lying if I said otherwise, but it's not sustainable. It hollows you out. And like, and I, so then like one of the activities in the book is I always say, pull the thread. Like, what's the thought behind the thought? And when I started to pull the thread, I realized about 12 years ago, I had an ad agency that just went sideways, small little ad agency. Um, it failed and I had to swoop in and save the day. And I learned in that moment, I can function in a crisis. That's not a bad thing to learn. That's a fine soundtrack. But it mutated over time to I, I function best in a crisis. And then it mutated into I need a crisis to function. So in order for me to get a project done, I had to like save the day and stir up all this chaos. And we've all been around leaders who can only lead through fires. And so when there's not a fire, they feel useless. So they start a fire. And so like it was seeing all of that. And then for me, finding out that the value of kindness, like there was a big study Google did called Project Aristotle. And they spent millions of dollars to answer the one question. What do the best teams here have in common? Highest performing, most successful teams, what do they have in common? And they did 35 different statistical models. They studied, I think, over 180 teams. And the one thing that the best teams all had in common is what they called psychological safety. And psychological safety is three things. On the team, you can ask questions, you can suggest new ideas, and you can admit you're wrong without being judged unkindly. And so for me, that was enough, like when I go speak to a really high performing sales team, if I trot out, be kind, they're going to laugh me off the stage. But if I go, hey, 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 here's why, like the most successful teams in the world, because like tie it to innovation. If you can't suggest new ideas, innovation's gone. It's gone. People hold back their best ideas. If you can't admit you're wrong, responsibility is gone. Mistakes never get fixed. And that ties back to kindness. So that's where like, the, the convergence of going, okay, every religious practice, every mindfulness thing, Google, who like is about like, Google's not telling you to be kind because they want you to be kind. They're going, okay, we see this as a real way that teams can win together. So they all came together and they all pointed back to kindness. And so that for me was 
that just felt like I'd stumble upon this treasure, like the most obvious treasure ever. Like I still haven't found somebody who told me, yeah, John, I got my life together when one day I woke up and I said, I got to get my life together, you idiot. So I just berated myself to life change and it feels great. Like, and there's motivational people that you bump into and you go, oh, they're running from trauma. Like they're still on the run and it's, there's, there's not a joy there. Like they've accomplished a ton, but like they're staying one step ahead of their trauma and there's never a time to pause and enjoy it because they're not speaking kindly to themselves. And so that, that's what got me really excited about that word. Well, that's one of the things about trauma, right? Is the, the content might change, but the, uh, the cycles, the process does not the process is the same process and you can just insert all kinds of different kindness or all, all sorts of different, um, content in there. Speaking of trauma, um, I'm, I'm guessing that in your research, 10,000 people, I know you commissioned that, that study, but I'm guessing in your research generally, you know, what role does trauma play in keeping people from their dreams? And can you tie that to changing soundtracks? Yeah. So I would say that, um, I think trauma, one of the things trauma does is it puts handles on broken soundtracks so that they're easier to pick up again and again and again and again. And I think that, you know, the handles from trauma are really sticky. So you would say, you know, one of your listeners could say, you know what, I got my kids out the door. I worked a full-time job. I scheduled carpooling and I was three minutes late to the car rider pickup line and I immediately heard you're the worst mom, you're the worst mom, you're the worst mom. Because somewhere there's probably been some trauma that I attached some handles to that thought. And so I think there are thoughts when it comes to trauma that you go, okay, this is going to be time consuming for me to change it. You know, the book has really three simple premises. It's you retire the broken soundtracks, you replace them with new ones, and you repeat them so often they become as automatic as the old ones. So there's sometimes, Chase, where you bump into truth and it changes everything almost instantly. Like that does happen. And we've seen that like, We've all had a coworker who we couldn't stand. And then we realized, oh, his wife has cancer. And like the stuff he's putting out at the office has nothing to do. Like, and that changes it. That sentence, knowing that changed it. So I do believe there's times where knowing the sentence changes it. But I also believe there's times when you take this baby new thought and put it up against this trauma thought that's been doing push-ups in the prison yard. And you go, it didn't, like, it was a really tough battle. And the, the <laughs> thought won. And so there's been times where I'll tell people like, I, you know, I love going to counseling. I love working things out. I love working them out in a community of conversation. Like one of the stories that happened to me about six weeks ago, I've got a friend named Ben um, and we go on walks, you know, once a week, we're going on one this Thursday for about an hour, hour and a half. We just talk about life. And so six weeks ago, he was like, Hey, what's going on? And I said, man, I was just reminded of this opportunity that I had missed. Like I missed it. And it made me feel sad that I missed it. It made me feel dumb because I felt like everybody else would have seen it and, and been able to execute it. It made me feel afraid. Like it's the last opportunity. It made me feel jealous because I know who got it instead. And so Ben got quiet and then he said, if you had gotten that opportunity, what would you have more of that you don't have now? And I was like, oh, that's a good question. And then he said, if you had gotten that opportunity, would you have gone deeper into your ego or deeper into your heart? And I didn't have to wait for a second to answer that one. Like it was an ego opportunity. And he said, because that makes me sad because I don't think he would have valued these walks and I would have missed this friendship. And I don't get to get that gift from him if I don't share the truth. If I don't say, I feel sad about this, I feel scared about this, I feel excited about this. And so I think that with trauma, especially, it takes a community. 
It takes, you know, wise people to walk alongside you. It takes kind people to walk alongside you. So I think that there's a ton of soundtracks you can change. And there's some that you go, you know what, I'm going to bring in some people who are going to tell me the truth about this and, and walk this road with me. So this is a super powerful framework for something that's so simple. Uh, you just identified the three, you know, identifying the soundtrack, um, writing a new one and then replaying that soundtrack for yourself until it replaces the other one. So let's go through, just do a little, um, little workshop here yeah. for the next five minutes. Help me identify my soundtracks. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first what thing the, I'd what say. What are the questions that you, you'd ask? One would ask. Yeah. I mean, one of the questions that. would be, tell me about a thing you want to do. And then tell me about the things that, you know, the reasons you can't do it. Like I would listen, you know, I would listen for also absolutes. So I try to get to your absolutes. Never, always, everyone, you know, I never succeed at this diet. Everyone else thinks this way. Or, you know, I'd listen for your absolutes. So I go, let's, let's find some absolutes because there's probably a broken soundtrack there. Um, we might say, okay. Chase, looking at the next seven days ahead, where do you want to win? What's something you want to win at? And every week has two parts, people and projects. So I might say to you, okay, let's, let's talk about people because you have a soundtrack for every person in your life. So we get real tactical. Everybody has a friend or a coworker that when they see the text, they don't even have to read it. They get furious or they get, ah. So we might go, okay, let's identify a person. What is it about that person? And you might go, you know what? Um, they're unqualified. I don't like them because they're unqualified for their job. And if we pulled the thread, it might be, well, maybe they've just done more with less. And you're actually, you wish you were as brave as them to ask for opportunities. So new, you need a new soundtrack. I get to be brave or it's time to be brave. Or maybe they ask you for favors and you feel like you can't say no because a mom told you you have to be accommodating 20 years ago. So now you don't have any boundaries and you feel like you can't say no. And this guy always reminds you of that. So the new soundtrack is I get to have boundaries or I deserve boundaries. And so we'd kind of walk through that and then we'd go, okay, let's talk about replace. How do we replace them? And we'd make it really simple. I'd never sit you down with a blank piece of paper. I don't believe in writer's block. I believe in idea bankruptcy. I always bring ideas and friends to a blank piece of paper. So I would never start and go, okay, Chase, sit down, write a bunch of new soundtracks. I would go, can we borrow some? Are there people in your life? Are there lyrics? Are there questions? Let's borrow some. The best definition of creativity, in my opinion, is Dorothy Parker, who said, creativity is a wild mind and a disciplined eye. The wildness is you fill your head with all these different topics, a song lyric, something Chase said on a podcast, you know, a book you read, and then you have the discipline to see the connection. So I'd go, hey, you know, like what's lighting you up these days? Let's talk about that. And then if that was still like, oh, it's a little intimidating, I'd get you to flip it. I'd say, okay. Like one for me was I realized I was the worst boss. I was a terrible boss to myself. So I didn't go on this long vision quest. I just said, what would the best boss do? Like in this situation, if I flipped it from worst boss to best boss, what would the best boss do? And I've had good bosses. So it wasn't impossible for me to go. Oh, I remember Suzanne, she was so kind and she'd always, you know, or I remember, you know, Mark, he did this. And so I'd go, okay, well, let's discuss what does that look like? Is there a soundtrack there? Um, and, and for me, it's, you know, it ends up being about self-awareness, but it ends up being about paying attention to the world around you. The world is crawling with soundtracks. Just most people don't understand. They get to change their thoughts. You get to choose your thoughts. Like thoughts happen by two ways, choice or chance. And they go so much better when they're choice. Brilliant. I love the, I love to me, the most powerful frameworks are like brutally simple. 
And then, oh, the four agreements. The four yeah. agreements isn't a 900 page book. Like you don't go, <laughs> I got a graph chart. Like you go, oh, it's four agreements. You go, that's why I think the best frameworks, again, are Trojan horses. You go, yeah. ah, like no one watching this has never heard the word true, helpful, or kind. You're like, those aren't even fancy words. They're not even long words. Like <laughs> nobody's going to be impressed by them. But if you actually sit with them for a second, you're like, oh, wait a second. I mean, I even used alliteration, like retire, replace, repeat. Like you could easily say, oh, it's alliteration. But then you get into it and you're like, oh, okay, that's what's fun. You talked about um, bankruptcy just a moment ago and more conceptual nature. But it makes me want to reflect in preparation for our conversation today. I read an article that was written about you and one of your philosophies that I think is really timely. And I, I wanted to get your take on it. And it's the concept of a career savings account. because. Again, the people come to the show for lots of reasons. A lot of the people come because they want to get unstuck. And 50% of those unstuck cases are cases in life and 50% are in career. And so for that 50% who are stuck in their career, we are, in case you hadn't noticed, uh, we are emerging finally, uh, slowly, but finally from a pandemic. And if this idea of a savings account for your career isn't very prescient for you right now, that, yeah. then I, you're, you're one of the few people that I know because we've just gone through, you know, without going into the weeds, economic devastation uh, for so many careers and professions, uh, the requirement of reinvention. And so, I just thought again in reading this, it was from, I don't know, like 2017 or 2018, yeah. I think. And I just, it was almost like you were seeing the future. And so talk to us about this idea of a career savings account. Cause it's not in the classic sense that you're talking about it. Yeah. So here's the reality. Um, we're all in the midst of a ton of change and change can feel overwhelming. Um, but I always say like, think about change, like a vertical line. And at the top is the word voluntary and the bottom is involuntary. Those are the two types of change. You either start it or you, you know, it you experience it outside of your control. And so then I start to think, okay, but that's too simple because not every voluntary change is good, not every involuntary is bad. We all get good surprises. We've all voluntarily dated people longer than we should have and made mistakes. So you add another line to that to create kind of this plus sign. And that one goes from negative to positive. And when you do that, you see these four really simple change moments that everybody goes through. So a voluntary negative moment when you're willingly going towards something negative is a ceiling. You climb to the top of a ladder, you get stuck. And, you know, 72% of Americans don't like what they do for a living, but they don't know what to do next. So they just keep banging their heads against the ceiling. Um, I mean, there's drink specials around the country on Sunday night for the Sunday scaries because people feel stuck. The, you know, a negative unexpected moment is a bump where life catches you off guard. Like think about every music. I live in Nashville. Every musician 15 years ago used to do tours to sell albums. The goal of the tour was to drive album sales because album sales matter the most. And then consumers are like, nah, music's free. So they had to flip and now they do a tour and they release an album trying to get you to the tour. And then the pandemic paused that. And so then on the plus side of things, a voluntary positive decision is a jump. When you read a book, when you get a mentor, when you listen to a podcast, move to a new city, it's a jump. And then a voluntary um, or involuntary positive moment is just an opportunity. And so there's these four change moments. And what you need in those moments are what I call a career savings account, which is skills, relationship, character, and hustle. 
really simple investments, skills, character, relationships, and hustle. And what you learn is that one of those investments that you continue to make will help you in each transition. When you hit a ceiling, the thing you need the most are your skills. Why? Because it's impossible to get stuck somewhere old if you keep learning something new. Skills are the hammer that helps you break through a ceiling. I'll tell you through like, there's three skills right now in this season that we all need. Number one, critical skills. And the way I like to say it is, what's your takeout sign? Every restaurant in America's critical skill was to print a sign that said, we do takeout. As you look at your career, as you look at your future, what's critical? For me, it was figuring out how to do virtual events. I'm a live event speaker. Last March, every event got either canceled or postponed. 70% of my business was that. I had to figure out, well, I better figure out how to be a good virtual speaker. The second type of skill you need are new skills. Um, you know, here's the question I'd, I'd ask you to say, what would have made this easier? What would have made this, e- this year easier? And then go build that. What would have made it easier? And then go, don't feel shame. Don't feel regret. I wish I had this already. But maybe having a work from home policy for your team would have made it easier. Maybe being better at social media because like every sales team lost the pop in. I know so many sales men and women that were like, I was the king of the donut delivery. I would, you know, put me in a room, I'll crush it. And then the pop in became illegal, dude. So what would have made this season easier? Being amazing at WebEx, being amazing at Zoom. Like, go figure that out. For me, that's why I launched a podcast because I was like, what would have made this easier? Having a podcast where I can communicate with people, where I can build ideas that way. So I built a podcast. Third type is classic skills. When we get busy, we put aside the things that got us there. When we get busy, we put aside things that still matter. So you got a classic skill to dust off and say, I used to be amazing at follow-up. I used to be the, the thank you guy. I used to be amazing at reaching out. I'm going to do that. So that when you hit a ceiling, you need skills. When you go through a bump, the thing you need the most are your relationships. If you want to figure out who your friends are, go through a negative, unexpected moment. And what you find out is the people you thought would show up often disappear. They Kaiser Soze. But then people you didn't even know knew you existed show up out of nowhere to link arms with you. Like people don't stay with businesses. People don't stay with churches. People don't stay with brands. They People stay with people. So relationships get you through a bump. When you have a jump moment, character. You need your character. Because when you jump to a new city, new skills, your skills aren't there yet. Your relationships aren't there yet. But when you jump, we jump with you. And my favorite example of that is up to 80% of people who move from mainland US to Hawaii move back within the first year. Why? Because they thought the problems they had in Ohio wouldn't follow them to Hawaii. They're like, as soon as I have better access to macadamia nuts and pineapple, like all my problems, and they get to Kona <laughs> and they unpack their boxes and the same insecurities are there. When you jump, you bring your character with you. The last one, when you get an opportunity, that's when you need your hustle because this tiny little window's opened up. And so what I encourage people to do is think about those investments. Think about that and go, okay. I feel really like I'm stuck. That's go get some skills. Go work on your skills. Or hey, I feel like I just went through a bump. Reach out. You're not supposed to do this alone. Like you're not. Like reach out to a relationship. Okay, wow, I just this window opened up and I get to do it. Okay, you better pull on the hustle. Like so that's what a career savings account is. It's investing in those four things deliberately. And here's the thing: everyone listening has more in their career savings account than they really know. You have more relationships than you're remembering. You have more skills than you're remembering. You've been working on your character. So a lot of what I do is try to get people to remember the things they already have. Because when you feel stuck after a pandemic, you kind of get blind to the things you're already good at. And that's when you feel really stuck is you kind of get in that spiral. So I love to remind people like, no, you have more than you think. Let's figure out what it is. That was a lot of words, Chase. I know like there's a lot. I feel like I'm just bucketing words on you right now. (laughs) That's why I'm here, but I'm here to get your 
your voiceover for uh, an incredible book. Speaking of um, this idea that we you mentioned earlier, uh, borrow from the best, us looking at a blank page and what are some things that we tell ourselves or that we ought to be telling ourselves, like you don't have to re- reinvent the script from scratch. And that was a, a chapter. I think it was a title of a chapter. Actually, I've got the book right here. Yeah, borrow from the best. Yeah, borrow from the best, chapter four. Um, it's thank you again for the very, very useful framework. Um, the idea of soundtracks is not new, right? We've got the soundtrack of our lives. We've got movies have soundtracks. And yet I don't think we think of those things as, um, as prominent as they are. There is basically a soundtrack um, playing 24 seven in most people's heads. Now, this is a question where I'm asking you to reconcile something that is sort of digging at me a little bit. Now, this idea you said earlier also that, you know, we're thinking people and, and, you know, thinking has got us a long way. And so we want to be able to master our thinking, but is there a world where, is there room in your system for not thinking. I just, you know, an exercise that I like to do that is like between now and now, did you think were you thinking between those two nows or how about now and now? No, there's no thinking happened. So, so is there room in your world? Because I'm trying to quiet my brain. And what I love about your system is this idea that you are trading out the old songs that no longer work for you for new songs and then you're playing them so that they become the the messages that you want mm-hmm. to hear again if the words that we say to ourselves are the most important words in the world that's good but is there room in your world for quiet yeah so i think that you know one of the most fascinating things about researching the book was a conversation i had with david thomas so david thomas is this brilliant author speaker therapist here in nashville he works for daystar this this great center for kids and i was talking to him about that i was asking him that question essentially and he said john the problem with negative thinking is people want there to be a switch they hope there's a switch a single switch i can find and when i turn it off i remove all my thoughts i remove all my negativity and so what happens is we go Yoga is my new switch and it works for a week. It works for a month, but then guess what? Things get loud again. You feel like a failure. You get into a perfectionistic loop and you go, oh, it's the wrong switch. A diet is the switch. Moving to a new city is the switch. And you keep looking for switches. And he said, it's not a switch. It's a dial. And when life gets the dial up, you get to turn the dial down. When life gets the dial up and there's so much freedom in that because you feel like a failure when you live a switch world. You feel like I'm one switch away and then you discover you weren't and you try all again and you feel like a failure versus going, wow, like my switch in May, like, I mean, my dial in May is at an 11. And so I'm going to do what I call my turn down techniques to get it back down. So a hundred percent, my version of that chase is I love road running, not trail running. Why? Because road running, I can turn off my thoughts. My feet can just go trail running, I have to pick every step carefully. I need more thought. I can't turn off my thoughts if I'm coming down the side of a mountain, but I run the same 3.1 mile loop in my neighborhood. Every People probably think I'm a maniac. Like that is my, like when people go, I like to run a bunch of different spots. I'm like, I am a boring runner. 
Why? Because I get to turn off. So for me, that's one of my turn off techniques. Another dorky one is I love doing big Lego sets. Like I, I got my daughter's uh, Harry Potter castle a few Christmases ago, and I realized I like it more than they do. And so I get big, like 5,000 piece car sets that are a Porsche 911 because there are no directions or steps or instructions to life for what I do. Like, how do you be an author? Like, how do you be a small business? Like, how do you be a speaker? And so doing a Lego set with a big, thick book of instructions and following it step by step is the same as somebody who knits and turns off their thoughts. So I 100% believe that there are specific things you can do. What I'd say is that I think they need to be your things, not somebody else's. Yeah. And I think when you try to use somebody else's turn town technique, you can tell pretty quickly like, oh, that ain't for-. like for me, it was cycling. I was like, I'm going to become a cyclist. And dude, I hated road biking. I just hated it. And some people they're like, no, that's what I love. Like my joke I always do is like, I don't like any sport that occasionally ends up with me getting hit by a car. And like, if you read a real road cyclist, they're not even that dramatic about the story. They're like, yeah, I've been hit a couple of times. Not a big deal. Like you got hit by a car. Like I would tell everybody that story. So I, I think it has to be connected to who you are. Well, part of one of the, you know, I just, to me, that was a lingering question because I work so hard at quieting my mind through meditation and mindfulness and awareness and just sure. like how, how do you be present in the moment versus, you know, when I'm walking through a doorway or in your example, I see green tennis shoes. I try and have these cues to myself for presence. And so much of our lives, when we're not intentional about it, end up being, oh, how was that conversation? Did they go? I wonder if they like what I had to say. And they like my pitch or I'm going to the thing. I'm late. I wonder how I'm going to get there. Which roads? My, you know, so it's just like, how do I quiet the mind? Um, but it was, I mean, I, I feel like I, I had a little insight into what your solution might be in that, that more than answered it. I just have to, for anyone who is thinking about this book, it is, I would call it critical reading, especially in this sort of post pandemic world where we created a bunch of new soundtracks, most of them not being all that healthy for us. But what I love about you, this is just specifically to you as a thank you. And I think this is a wicked insight, a wicked hack is you're essentially hacking the biology because we, this thing between our ears is an active dialogue, or I just said, I'm working to quiet my mind, but I can't say that I'm enlightened. So my mind basically runs, you know, 23.75 hours per day. But what you've done and my, my experience in trying to apply this was that it seems like we're just hacking and, and pro using this biology and instead of programming us with fear, which to be fair, that's what overthinking is, right? It's fear. And you were, you were clear about that in the opening of the book and in the, in the marketing stuff. I'm looking at the jacket right here. It's the sneakiest form of fear is that you're using that fear or that thing that has historically been a, a fear vector and you're empowering it with positivity and with intention in a way that I just think is, is brilliant. It's been hiding there in plain sight for us all along. And, and so I wanted to say thank you personally. I oh, think thanks, it's very, very, very effective. Um, anytime you can make use of that, that's why you keep, you know, you've called it a Trojan horse a couple of times. Um, all right. So what of the stories we talked about, uh, there was the story that you shared early on about Colleen Berry. Mm -hmm. Uh, you'd said someone else asked you some of the things that were surprising 
Is there a surprise from the research that you haven't shared publicly yet? Because I'm just imagining the research. You get to tap into people's hearts and minds and brains and fears and the lies that we tell ourselves in order mm-hmm. to uncork some of this stuff. Um, is there anything that was yeah. that, that people thought was weird or obtuse that it turns out is probably pretty pretty common? Or what were some of your faves? Well, yeah, I mean, there, the surprise to me was how many people do it and how few people think other people do it. So it's a unique situation where everybody does it and everybody thinks they're the only one. And so I'd say, have you ever have you ever read a sent message, like an email you sent and like a week later you've reread it? And people are like, yeah, I'm like, that's overthinking. Like the message yeah. is gone. Like you're not changing it. So that was surprising. But what's been really surprising um, after the launch, because it's been out for a couple of weeks, is how many parents have said, will you do a version for parents? Will you do a version for kids? And what's been really fascinating is how many like that kids get this faster than adults because they don't have 20 years of broken soundtracks to unlearn. Mm. Like when you tell a kid the truth, they sprint with it. And that's been a really fun surprise. Like I didn't go in thinking, okay, there's going to be a lot of parents that apply this to how they talk with their kids. Like, and to have parents go, my 15 year old just read your book. He's pointing out soundtracks, you know, a gym teacher, what's told him he's fat and he's never felt like an athlete because that was like a pronouncement on him. And now he's realizing that's not the truth. Like that is something I didn't see coming. That was a surprise. 99.5% of people said yes, that they overthink. And we got dozens of emails from people that said, I kept overthinking the survey. I'm sorry. I kept <laughs> and I would say it was like six questions. That's probably a fairly good sign that you're, that you're overthinking. Um, so yeah, that was, you know, you want to say like, as an author, if you ever find a subject, 99.5% of people identify with, like you need to be like, turns out I need to jump into that. Cause that's a really big conversation. Well, kudos to you, man, for just uncovering something or crafting, you know, you talked about Venn diagrams and just seeing the overlap and how useful and valuable this tool is. I, again, I, I've said it a couple of times already in this thing, that, again, the most valuable words in the world are the ones we say to ourselves. And, and when we look across our culture, we don't really have a system for, um, for programming. And so I should also point out for, um, those who are curious, uh, I also enjoyed in the book, it's very prescriptive. There's a thing, you know, writing a soundtrack and looking at the mirror and rehearsing it every day for yep. 30 days. There's some very, very tactical things right now that if that just sent a little twinge of fear up your spine, when I said that, that probably means you need it. Um, last question, and it goes back to, well, in a full circle moment here, I opened the conversation with sharing that you're one of my, the most entertaining speakers I've ever watched live. And um, I had that the good fortune to, you know, spend some time with you that weekend in Portland. Um, I want people to pick up your book because I think it's valuable. I also want people to want to see you speak. I know you speak at a lot of conferences and mm-hmm. um, as a stand in, because there's not a lot of that happening right now. Are there a few places that you would point people to on the internet where they can see you in action. You cited it as one of your favorite things on the planet to do, to give speeches. Mm-hmm. Where would you steer the people who are watching and listening right now? Yeah. I mean, I've got a ton of YouTube videos. Um, so I have a YouTube channel. It's uh, I think it's youtube.com slash author John Acuff. Um, okay. So I've got a bunch of YouTube content that I think will be encouraging. Um, and then um, one of the things I've learned to love to do is uh, teach online. 
Like we did this big free challenge about overcoming overthinking where I taught for an hour every day in a Facebook live group or Facebook uh, group. And it was, it was free. And so I'm constantly doing that. I've got one coming up. I don't know when this will air, but I'm doing one on perfectionism because I think perfectionism is one of the biggest soundtracks people get. So yeah, I would say, um, you know, acuff.me is where I keep all my stuff. Um, and then I'm loving, like, I'm loving the community app because like texting people feels like how Twitter used to feel to me. Like Twitter has a different feel now. And so like, if somebody's like, oh man, I want to know about the next time you're speaking, I'll just share my number if that's all right. Um, please. Yeah, please do. 615. And this will be in the show notes. I assume 615-398-6873. And I I love encouraging people that way. Um, And then my goal is to get back on the road. Um, to get back out there, um, I'm starting to see stuff open up. Like you said, we're starting to, you know, kind of go through it. And then I did a soundtracks course. We've got a six part video course about soundtracks. And so it's my favorite thing. Um, I just love doing it. I hope it returns soon. And it's so kind of you to say that chase. I've been such a big fan for so long. I told you off camera, every time we get to do this, I'm like, why aren't we doing like 15 things together? Um, it feels like there's eight years in the gap, I think right now. And that's eight years too long. (laughs) Agreed. I remember seeing your you and your book in my DMs on Twitter, uh, I think it was a year ago. And I'm like, I cannot wait for that episode. Um, Thank you again. The same sentiment is in my my head and heart right now. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm already like cranking on a few things. Um, Made me want to say, uh, give me that number one more time. Oh yeah, totally. And for community, I'm also on the thing. Uh, I'll give you mine. Mine's 206-309-5177. So you can text with me and John. I don't, I don't share it that often, but uh, there's, uh, isn't it fun though? It's so fun. And I, I mean, like my little thumbs can't type all that fast, but I'm like, yeah. I and then like, it. I like when people go, okay, you're not like, is this really you? And I get to go. Yeah. <laughs> I make a video. I, I usually in. make a video. I'm like, hmm. oh, you do a vi- <laughs> oh, come on. That's why you're so dope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the two things I'd say, and now I'll do videos. My number is 615-398-6873, 615-398-6873. And then soundtrackscourse.com. If, you wanna, if you're like, I want to see some videos, I'd love to see this in a, like a video format. I think that's a really fun way to do it. And we've had a bunch of people go, oh, that, that was practical and fun. I mean, that's the thing. The book is... People ask me all the time, are the stories true in the book? And like, they're a hundred percent true. Like I did buy 48 haircuts at the same time. Like I did, <laughs> I I did get so many coins to try to learn how to not text and drive. Like I did leave my pregnant wife of six months down at the bottom of the Duomo. Cause I started overthinking how tight the tunnel was in the tower. And I started sprinting and sprinting. Cause my dad, <laughs> before I went to Italy, was like, Hey, that Duomo is real claustrophobic. And that became a soundtrack. So I got in that tower and I started going, man, there's barely any windows. Like, man, barely, you, know, you can't even fit. Like, where's the exit? You can't even tell if you're getting higher because it's so dark in here. And I sprinted <laughs> to the top and I burst out the door like Tim Robbins at the end of Shawshank Redemption. And like 20 minutes later, my pregnant wife came up and was like, what was that? Um, and so hopefully the book is really helpful, but also really fun at the same time. The 48 haircut story made me laugh. I reread that. I have 24 left, 24 (laughs) left. I'm going to get one this week. And every time I go, she told me the the lady said, we're no longer selling that package. I was like, you think, you think you're no longer, because dude, I bought the the haircuts and I swear to you three weeks later, the world got shut down for COVID. I was like, 
I might've just lost out on 46 haircuts. <laughs> and my wife was like, how much did you spend on haircuts? And I was like, but well, think of the savings. It was, yeah, it, it's just talking about that makes me a little bit sweaty. All right, two, two things. One, again, uh, John, your new book here. I'm showing it for the people who are listening. Sorry, you can't watch the video here. It's a beautiful cover. Soundtracks, a surprising solution to overthinking. And I'll close with speaking of your wife, Jenny. Uh, I love the dedication page in here. Where is it, if I'm not mistaken? The dedication is, John, I think you might be overthinking this quote. Yeah. From Jenny. <laughs> that is 100% accurate to our you life. Guys are, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show, John. Congratulations on an amazing book. And more importantly, just weaving all of these thoughts together that you packaged it in a book is natural to you and is of no surprise. I encourage everybody out there to pay attention. You know, he, he just gave you a few places on the internet to go check him out. If you just Google John and some speed, John Acuff, John with no H, J-O-N-A-C-U-F-F, no uh, and some of his speeches, uh, you prepare to be blown away. I just remember just standing there in awe at how watching you just work the crowd and uh, in just the most playful, joyful, insightful, heartfelt way. It was unforgettable so until next Thanks, time chase. dude thank you so much for being on the show the answer is yes the answer is yes to chase so awesome let's keep doing stuff. all right well let's let's support john and go out in there and pick up some new copies of his uh book and show up for him in those online courses um thanks again bud appreciate you and uh signing off for everybody out there in the internet land thank you so much for listening watching and being a part of this community all right. Hey, before you go, thank you so much for listening. And I want you to know that I appreciate the time, the attention that you give to this show, to the guests and to yours truly. And I wanted to take a second to say thank you. This community, like any community, is a testament to the saying that a rising tide lifts all boats. By elevating one another, by sharing and resharing the show, the tidbits that you learn, the experiences that you take away from here we can collectively have a massive positive impact on the world. Now, whether you're new here to my orbit or you've been here for a decade, I would encourage you to think about how you can show up for your peers, for your fellow creators, and the people in your life that you really know and care about. And one way of doing that is to share this podcast. If you got any value from one of these shows or if you've been listening for a long time, you're spreading the love means the world to me. That's how this show gets out. We don't spend a dollar on paid advertising for the show. It's you and me and the guests on the show that help reach new people every week. So I wanted to say thank you. I wanted to remind you that the only way this thing grows is if we grow together. And, uh, and I'm grateful for any and all action that you take to that end. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together.